the effects of the new birth. Regeneration, its attendance generally considered. Ephesians 4.22-24 from the Theology of Timothy Dwight. That you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In the last discourse, I described the situation and conduct of a convinced sinner. It is now my intention to exhibit the conversion of the same sinner to God, or to exhibit what in that discourse I called the attendance of regeneration. In the text connected with the 17th verse, the Ephesians are commanded to put off the old man with his deeds, and to put on the new man, or in a more strict accordance with the original language, to cast away the old and be clothed with the new man. It has been supposed that the passage contains an allusion to the conduct of the new converts at their baptism, who are said at this ordinance to have cast away their old garments as a symbol of their renunciation of sin, and to have been clothed with new ones as a token of their assumption of holiness. It has also been supposed that the apostle alludes to the custom of actors who change their clothes whenever they change their characters. The allusion is, however, so natural and familiar that it seems unnecessary to look far for an explanation. To put off the old man and to put on the new man are, in the text, exhibited as equivalent to being renewed in the spirit of the mind, that is, to being the subjects of regeneration. This doctrine is still further illustrated in the declarations that the old man is corrupt and that the new man is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. That to renounce a former of these characters and to assume the latter is the same thing with being regenerated. No person, probably, who is acquainted with the subject will dispute. Under these two heads, then, I shall now consider the further progress of this convinced sinner, his renunciation of sin, and, number two, his assumption of holiness as his future character. As these coexist in the mind, it will be unnecessary to consider them apart. When the convinced sinner has, by a succession of earnest efforts to save himself, proved his utter inability to accomplish this important work, the next natural step, and that which he then becomes convinced it is absolutely necessary for him to take, is to cast himself wholly upon God. He sees himself perfectly helpless, and if left to himself, utterly ruined. In the anguish of mind produced by this view of his situation, he casts himself at the footstool of divine mercy as a mere suppliant, as devoid of any recommendation to the favor of God, as a ruined, miserable creature, as justly condemned, as justly to be punished, as having no hope but in mere forgiveness." as desiring salvation of mere grace and sovereign love, as without any power of atoning for his sins by anything which he can do, is capable of being saved only on account of the atonement of Christ, and is incapable of renewing himself or of being renewed but by the power of the Holy Ghost. All these things are felt and not merely understood, not merely considered as being proved or capable of proof by sound argument." 
The several trials which the mind has made have of themselves become proofs of the highest kind, to which it now opposes neither objection nor doubt. Its views have been too clear to be denied or questioned, and the frame of the mind, its anxiety and distress, renders it even impatient of the suggestion of uncertainty. Self-righteousness is, therefore, now relinquished. The pride of saving himself, either wholly or partially, is now given up, and the sinner is humbly and easily satisfied to be saved by Christ. To his atonement, to his infinite compassion, he looks for the aid which, though felt before to be unnecessary, he now regards as absolutely and infinitely necessary to prevent him from being lost. When the sinner has come to the state of views and disposition, God in his infinite mercy usually, perhaps always, communicates to him the new heart, the right spirit so often mentioned in the scriptures. It will here be useful and probably necessary to guard the minds of those who hear me against a common and very natural error concerning this important subject. It has often been supposed that in some part or in the whole of that process of the mind which has been here described, there is something done of a meritorious nature, something so pleasing to God that on account of it he bestows this incomprehensible blessing. In my own view, this opinion is wholly unscriptural and altogether dangerous. If God gives a virtuous disposition intended, then it did not exist in the mind before it was thus given. And as this disposition is the only source of virtuous action in the mind, it is perfectly clear that there can be no such action before it is communicated. That God does in fact give it by His Spirit has, I trust, been heretofore proved. Antecedently to regeneration, then, there is no virtuous action in the mind, in the true and evangelical sense, unless we are to suppose two distinct sources of virtue and two different kinds of virtuous action. It will here be naturally asked, what then is the true nature of this subject? What is the use of conviction of sin? Why does God communicate such a disposition to such sinners as are effectually convinced of their sins rather than to any others? In answer to these reasonable questions, I observe that the use of such conviction is to bring the sinner to a just view of his own condition and character as a sinner, of the character of God as his sovereign, of the divine law as a rule of his conduct, of the character of Christ as his Savior, of the absolute necessity of an interest in his redemption for the attainment of salvation, and of the excellency and importance of holiness in all its branches, as a moral character indispensable to entitle him to the favor and approbation of God. Without these apprehensions, it would be very difficult to conceive how a sinner could become the subject of those exercises which belong to the nature of conversion to God. For example, how can the sinner who does not clearly see the evil, odiousness, and malignity of sin ever be supposed to hate sin, mourn for it, or abstain from it in future periods? How, unless he discerns the excellency and obligation of the law as a rule of duty for himself, can he discern either the guilt of his transgressions or the necessity and value of his future obedience? How, unless he be fully convinced of the justice and glory of God in hating and condemning sin, can he acknowledge God to be a reasonable or righteous sovereign?
and how can he ingenuously and voluntarily turn to him at all? Finally, if he do not perceive his own helplessness and his insufficiency to save himself, how can he betake himself at all to him for salvation? How, if he does not realize the fitness of Christ to be trusted with his soul in all his concerns, as able, willing, and faithful to save to the uttermost all that will come unto God by him, can he believe on him or trust in him for these infinite blessings? When God bestows a new disposition on the sinner in the state above described, rather than in his ordinary state, he does this, I apprehend, not because the sinner has merited this blessing or any other at his hands, but because he has now become possessed of such a character and such views, is rendered the communication of it fit and proper in itself. God never extends mercy to sinners because of their desert or worth, but because they need his mercy. When he sent his son into the world to save the apostate race of Adam, it was not because these apostates had merited, but because they needed such kindness at his hands. It was a mere act of grace, of free sovereign love. The communication of it was not a reward conferred on worth, for they plainly had none, but a free gift to mere necessity and distress, Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, and to call not righteous beings, but sinners to repentance. The father in the parable did not admit the prodigal into his family in favor on account of any services which he had rendered, for he had rendered none, but on account of the misery and ruin of his son, pleading strongly with his own compassions. Such I conceive to be the case of every convinced sinner when he is made the subject of the renewing grace of God. But there is a plain reason why such sinners are made the objects of divine mercy when they have arrived at a complete view of their guilt, danger, and dependence on God for sanctification and deliverance, rather than while they were at ease in sin and self-justified in their rebellion. In the latter situation, they were utterly unprepared either to feel or understand the nature and extent of the divine goodness in bestowing these blessings, and of course to be thankful, obedient, humble, and universally virtuous to that degree which is necessary to their effectual preparation for heaven, and which seems incapable of being accomplished in any other manner than this which I have described." A deliverance is both understood and felt in proportion to the greatness of the sense which the person delivered has had of his danger. A new moral character is welcomed in proportion to the feelings which have been experienced in the debasement and disadvantages of the character previously existing. Universally, every benefit is realized in proportion to the sense of our own necessity. Thus, by the sense of his guilt, danger, and need of salvation, experienced under the conviction of his sin, the sinner is prepared with the utmost advantage to receive his sanctification, justification, and final deliverance from eternal ruin. This is what I call the fitness of the sinner for the reception of these benefits, a fitness which seems indispensable, appearing plainly to render it proper that God should give these blessings to a convinced sinner, when it would be wholly improper to give them to the same sinner while unconvinced and insensible. 
Benefits are wisely conferred on those who are fitted thoroughly to understand, feel, and acknowledge them, and unwisely on those who are not, whose views are obscure, whose feelings are blunt, and whose acknowledgments, if made at all, are wrung from them by the hard hand of necessity. In the former case, the benefits may be said to be laid out well, in the latter, to little or no purpose. These observations may possibly throw some light on a subject which hitherto has been almost merely a topic of debate among theologians. This is the true nature and efficacy of the prayers of such persons as are under conviction of sin. Some divines who strongly encouraged and others utterly discouraged convinced sinners from praying. Those of the latter class, founding their opinions on the declaration that the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, observe that the prayers of convinced sinners cannot be acceptable to God, that they cannot reasonably be expected to be either heard or answered, and that therefore it is unjustifiable to advise such sinners or any sinners whatever to pray at all. This subject will hereafter naturally offer itself for discussion. I shall now consider it only so far as my present purpose demands. According to the opinion which I have recited, no man can with any propriety pray for his regeneration. The sinner cannot pray for it because his prayers are sinful and abominable. The saint cannot pray for it with propriety because he is already regenerated and cannot possibly either need or receive it. Thus, a great blessing ever given to man, and that on which all other blessings depend, cannot be prayed for by him who receives it, and stands therefore on a ground totally diverse from that on which all other blessings rest, on such a ground that a man can never ask it for himself. The prayers of convinced sinners, it is said, are insincere and therefore abominable to God. In answer to this objection, I observe that a sinner, whether convinced or not, may undoubtedly pray with insincerity in all instances, but there is no invincible necessity that his prayer should always be insincere, notwithstanding he is a sinner. A sinner may, from a sense of his danger and misery, pray as sincerely to be saved from that danger and misery as a saint. His disposition, I acknowledge, is still sinful, and his prayers are wholly destitute of moral goodness, but the mere wish to be saved from suffering is neither sinful nor holy. On the contrary, it is merely the instinctive desire of every percipient being without which he would cease to be a percipient being. That there is anything hateful to God in this wish, whether expressed in prayer or not, I cannot perceive, nor do I find it declared either by reason or revelation. It may indeed be united with other desires, and those either virtuous or sinful, according to the prevailing character of the mind in which it exists, and the whole state of the mind may be accordingly denominated virtuous or sinful." Still, this desire is neither morally good nor morally evil, and therefore neither pleasing nor displeasing as such in the sight of God. That God pities sinners as mere sufferers will not be doubted. Otherwise, he would not have sent his Son to redeem them from sin and misery. That he pities them more when strongly affected with a sense of their guilt and misery than when at ease concerning both will, I think, be readily believed." The sinner is certainly not less an object of compassion, but much more, when feeling the evils in which he is involved, and I can see no reason why he may not be more an object of divine compassion on that account as well as of ours. The cries of the sinner for mercy are not, therefore, in themselves sinful, and there is nothing to make the sinner less but much, apparently, to make him more an object of the divine pity."
As a sinner knows that regeneration is the only possible means of escape and safety, so he may and plainly will feel in the same degree the necessity of regeneration to him as of safety. For regeneration, then, he will cry with the same ardor and the same freedom from sinfulness in this prayer considered by itself as for salvation or deliverance from suffering. That the prayers of unregenerate men are not virtuous must undoubtedly be admitted, for nothing can be virtuous which does not proceed from a heart good in the evangelical sense. That they are sinful, so far as they are of a moral nature, must also be admitted, at least by me. The declaration of Solomon that the prayers of the wicked are an abomination appears to me, together with others of the like import, to be a description of the prayers of wicked men as they are in their general nature, and not as a mere cries of a suffering creature for mercy. And these consider by themselves, I see nothing of a sinful nature. They are not indeed objects of the divine complacency, and the sinner who offers them is clearly an object of the divine anger. But I see no evidence that the prayers of such a sinner may not be objects of the divine benevolence, and regarded by the infinite mind with compassion. To that compassion only are they addressed." The cries of a profligate vagrant in distress render him more properly and more intensely an object of compassion, and especially entitled to relief, although he is still a profligate, from a good man than he would be were he to continue insensible and hardened under his sufferings, and thus utterly unfitted to have any proper views of his need of relief or the kindness of his benefactor in furnishing it. I see no reason why God may not regard suffering sinners in a similar manner. That he does, in fact, thus regard them is, I think, unanswerably evident. Regeneration regularly following such prayers and being regularly communicated to the subjects of them in the course of God's providence whenever it exists at all. That this is ordinarily, nay, that it is almost always a fact, cannot, I think, be questioned. All sinners under conviction pray, and of such sinners all converts are made. To convince sinners crying to God for mercy, regeneration is communicated by the Spirit of God, and we are not, I think, warranted to conclude that it is given to any others. As then, the whole number of regenerated persons is formed of those who have been convinced of sin and who have been diligently employed in prayer while under conviction, it is plain that their prayers are not abominable in such a sense as to prevent the blessing prayed for from descending upon them, and therefore not in such a sense as rationally to discourage them from praying. The prayer of the publican is, in my view, a clear and strong illustration of the justice of these remarks. There is no proof, nor in my opinion any reason to believe that this man was regenerated. On the contrary, he declares himself in his prayer to God to be a sinner. As this declaration is put into his mouth by our Savior, it must, I think, be considered not only as a sincere declaration, but a correct one, expressing with exactness the precise truth. He was also a convinced sinner, as is evident from his own words and from the whole tenor of the parable. Yet he was justified rather than the Pharisee. The Pharisee came before God with a false account of himself, with a lofty spirit of self-righteousness, and with an unwarrantable contempt for other men, particularly for the publican. 
The publican came with a strong and full conviction of his sin and his supreme need of deliverance. With these views, confessing himself to be a sinner merrily, he earnestly besought God to have mercy on him. His sense of his character was plainly just, and his prayer, being the result of his feelings, was of course sincere. Thus far I consider him as justified and no further. If he was regenerated in consequence of his prayer and justified in the evangelical sense, the parable becomes completely decisive to my purpose and furnishes all the encouragement to convince sinners to pray which can be asked. But this I will not at present insist on, because it is not expressly declared, although in my own view it is fairly and rationally inferred from the strain of the parable. These observations I have made at the present time, because the subject could scarcely fail of occurring to your minds, and because difficulties could scarcely fail of attending it, in the view of some persons at least which it must be desirable to remove. Allow me, however, to observe that divine so far as I may be permitted to judge have insisted on the metaphysical nature of this and several other subjects in such a manner as rather to perplex than to instruct those who have heard them. To unfold or to limit exactly the agency of mortal beings seems to be a task imperfectly suited to such minds as ours. What the scriptures have said concerning the subject we know so far as we understand their meaning. We also know whatever is clearly taught us by experience. Beyond this, our investigations seem not to have proceeded very far, and almost all the conclusions derived from reasonings a priori have failed of satisfying minds not originally biased in their favor. From this digression, which I hope has not been wholly without use, I now return to the general subject. When the sinner has come to the state of discernment and feeling, in which his character, danger, and necessity of deliverance are thus realized, and has thus cast himself as a mere suppliant for mercy at the footstool of divine grace, God, as has already been observed, gives him a new and virtuous disposition, styled in the scriptures a new heart, a right spirit, an honest and good heart, the good treasure of a good heart, and by several other names of like him. Import. The act of the Spirit of God by which this disposition is communicated, that is, the act of regenerating man, and the disposition itself which is communicated, I cannot be expected to describe. Neither of these things can in the abstract be known or even contemplated by such minds as ours. Not a single idea would ever be formed concerning the nature or existence of either, were they not discovered by their effects, or as they are called in the gospel, their fruits. It may, however, be useful to repeat that what I intend by this disposition is the cause which in the mind of man produces all virtuous affections and volitions, the state in which the mind is universally possessed of a tendency to the evangelical character, or the tendency itself of the mind towards all that which in the character is morally excellent. The existence of this disposition is proved by its effects, and in these only can it be seen. As these are new and before unknown, it follows irresistibly that the cause is equally new. This is also abundantly taught by the scriptures in which the disposition itself is called a new heart, the man who becomes a subject of it, a new creature, and a life proceeding from it newness of life. The first great effect of this disposition is the exercise of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The convinced sinner, as I have repeatedly observed, deeply feels his own utter inability to atone for his sins, to satisfy the demands of the divine law, and to reconcile himself to God. All this, however, Christ informs him in the gospel, he is able, willing, and faithful to do for him. In this situation, the sinner for the first time confides in these declarations of the Redeemer, and in that moral character which furnishes the evidence of their truth. The scheme of saving himself, either wholly or partially, he is now given up, and is satisfied and delighted to be saved by Christ alone. His self-righteousness, so dear and delightful to him before, he now discerns to be nothing but gross spiritual pride, and so far from being praiseworthy as to be the foundation of nothing but guilt and shame. Now he quits all designs of exalting and gratifying himself in this work, and becomes highly pleased with exalting Christ, by cheerfully rendering to him all the honor of his salvation. With these emotions, he receives Christ with all the heart, and confides in him for acceptance with God, as the only, and at the same time the most desirable, atonement for sin. Now, if he could save himself, he would not choose to be thus saved, but sees a beauty and glory in the salvation of sinners by Christ, with which his heart wholly accords, and with which his soul is exceedingly delighted. He surrenders himself, therefore, into the hands of this divine Redeemer, confidentially, to be his here and forever, to be governed by his choice, and to do all his pleasure." The next effect of this disposition is that which in the scripture is called repentance unto life, and in theological discourses, evangelical repentance. It has been already observed that the convinced sinner is, of course, deeply affected with a realizing sense of his sins as being guilty, deserving the wrath of God and the sources of ruin to himself. After he is regenerated, he for the first time begins to hate his sins as odious in their very nature, as injurious to God, his fellow creatures, and himself, and to loathe himself as a sinner. Now for the first time he begins to feel that he has been an ungrateful, impious, and rebellious wretch, opposed in heart and life to the government of his Maker, a nuisance to his fellow creatures, and an enemy to himself. His character he perceives to be deeply debased, and himself to be unworthy of the least of all the mercies bestowed on him by the divine benefactor. With all this is also united a strong sense of the odiousness and danger of every future sin, a sense which is continued through life. All these things also he spontaneously and ingenuously confesses before God. Him he has injured above all other beings, and to him he wishes especially to make whatever satisfaction is in his power." Willingly, therefore, he humbles himself before his Maker in dust and ashes, and henceforth assumes lowliness of mind as his own most becoming and favorite character. The disobedience which he thus hates and loathes, he necessarily wishes and labors to avoid. The obedience which he heretofore loathes, he spontaneously assumes in a manner not less necessary as his own future character." 
unwilling now to wound himself, to injure his fellow man, and to dishonor God by the indulgence of his former guilty inclinations, he resolves henceforth to do that and that only which will glorify his Maker, promote the happiness of his fellow creatures, and profit his own soul. To this great work, the end of all others, he consecrates himself with sincerity, zeal, and fixed determination. The next fruit of this disposition is love to God. When the soul is regenerated, it begins to behold its Maker's character with new optics and therefore perceives the character itself to be new so far as its own views are concerned. It is now seen to be formed of such attributes as wholly deserve and most reasonably claim the supreme love of every intelligent being. God becomes to the renewed man a welcome object of his daily thoughts and meditations, an object great and awful indeed, but also lovely and delightful. These two great parts of the divine character being generally united in the view of the mind produce in it that regard to God compounded of fear and love, which is commonly named reverence, the affection in which love is more frequently exercised than by itself. In the same mind also, the sight of his wonderful works and more wonderful agency produces admiration, a sense of his excellence, complacency and the reception of his blessings, gratitude, and with these are inseparably united all the other affections of piety, dependence, confidence, resignation, hope, and joy. Of these some prevail at one time and some at another, but all are enrolled into the very character of the soul as primarily parts of its moral nature. These three exercises constitute what in the scripture is called conversion or turning from sin to God. The next fruit of this disposition is love to mankind, evangelical love to our neighbor, that is, to all mankind, whether friends or enemies, is a characteristic of the renewed mind, is really new and really unexperienced before its renovation as repentance or faith. Whatever love it exercised to others antecedently to this period was either selfish or merely instinctive, in the former case sinful, in the latter possessed of no moral character any more than the affection of brutes to their offspring. Now the love which it exercises is impartial, generous, and noble. Under its influence a renewed man does that which is good, just, and sincere, because it is so, and because God has required these things in his law, and not from a regard to reputation or convenience. Now he finds a promotion of happiness to be desirable and delightful in itself, and independently of a separate reward, to be done for its own sake, and not merely as it is done by publicans and sinners. The great question now becomes how, when, and where good can be done, and not what he shall gain by doing it. Now also, he chooses to do good by rule, and from a spirit of obedience to the rightful lawgiver, and all-wise director, and thus makes it the purpose of his life. Now finally, he does good conscientiously, with contrivance and design, not accidentally, loosely, and rarely. Towards Christians, this love assumes a peculiar character, being made up of two great and distinguished exercises, the general benevolence exercised toward them in common with all men, and that peculiar delight in their virtuous character, commonly called complacency, and in the gospel brotherly love. 
This is the object of the new commandment given by Christ in the gospel and made the touchstone by which they are proved to be his disciples. Of all these exercises of the mind, it is to be observed that they are active exertions directed invariably and always towards the promotion of real good, the spring of all excellent conduct within and without the soul. It is not to be understood that they exist and act in such a separate manner as to be distinguishable as to the times and modes of their existence or operations, nor that they actually take place in that order in which they have now been mentioned. Of this subject, the Scripture gives us no distinct account, and happily, as indeed might fairly be concluded from their silence, it is of no serious importance to us. All which is really necessary is that they exist and increase in such a manner as is best in the sight of God. As a regenerated man discerns his own unceasing need of divine assistance and his general propensity to stop and backslide in his religious course, he will necessarily and instinctively look to God for assistance, strength, and success. Prayer will be the breath by which he will live and grow and thrive. The closet, the family, and the church will alternately be the scenes of his public and private devotions, the places where he will find hope and peace and joy, and where he will advance in all evangelical attainments. To the scriptures also will he betake himself for the same aid. In them he finds God speaking to him and declaring the very things which are necessary to enlighten his understanding and to amend his heart. To the scriptures, therefore, he will continually resort and will make them the object of his investigation and reflection at all convenient seasons. Nor will he be less employed in exploring the recesses of his own heart that he may learn as far as may be the moral state of his mind, his sins and dangers, the improvements which he has made in holiness, and the means of future safety." In the like manner will the renewed mind solicit and lay hold on the company, conversation, and friendship of good men, their views of the scriptures, of the danger of sin and temptation, and of the excellency and safety of holiness, their own affections and conduct, their example in prayers, their sympathy, communion, and encouragement, will prove ever-flowing springs of spiritual life and consolation." These are its own companions in the path of life, the disciples of its own Savior, the children of its own Heavenly Father. All its interests are theirs. One common cause unites, one common family embraces, one common spirit quickens, and one God, the Father, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier of all, loves, purifies, conducts, supports, and brings to his own house both the regenerated man and his fellow Christians. In them, therefore, he finds an interest, a friendship, a kindred character of soul which binds him to them with an indissoluble attachment. With peculiar satisfaction, he enjoys their company here, and with delightful hope anticipates their endless society hereafter. Thus have I endeavored summarily to explain the work of regeneration, and to describe those immediate fruits of it by means of which alone it is discernible by man. As these apparently coexist with the work itself, I have in general language called them its attendance. The name, I confess, is not metaphysically exact, nor will I insist on the entire propriety of adopting it, 
Yet, as it naturally coincides with the views formed on this subject by the mind in which it exists, it seems sufficiently descriptive of what was intended for my purpose. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.